Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway, the hip hooray and ballyhoo, the lullaby of Broadway, the rumble of the subway train, the rattle of the taxis, the happy deals to entertain, and Angelo's and the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is the first episode of a new Broadway Nation miniseries that will explore what I'm calling The Other Broadway. Today, when we see or hear the word Broadway, most likely we think of New York's theater district and its 41 active theaters that are nestled in and around Times Square, where today, as I record this, I'm very happy to say that 35 plays and musicals have thankfully returned to the stage. Or the word Broadway evokes for us that canon of plays and musicals that have played in those theaters during its storied history, most especially those that have been the principal subject of this podcast, at least up until now, those great, glorious Broadway musicals, their songs, their creators, and their stars. But that is really only part of what Broadway meant to most people during the first half of the 20th century, that period when Broadway was at the center of American culture. For more than five decades, the word Broadway meant not just the performances you could experience in the legitimate theaters, those plays, musicals, and reviews, but also, or even more so, it meant the nightlife that surrounded them. During the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, there were hundreds of cabarets, speakeasies, and nightclubs all crammed into the theater district, and they epitomized Broadway just as much as what was happening in the theaters. 
In fact, the most famous songs about Broadway, those anthemic tributes that you hear on every Tony Award show and every Broadway-themed occasion, all have lyrics that are much more about the nightlife scene than they are about the shows. Take Lullaby of Broadway as an example. Come on along and listen to the lullaby What does this song famously tell us that we should come along and listen to? The hip hooray and ballyhoo what is it that constitutes the hip hooray and ballyhoo of Broadway? The rumble of the subway train, the rattle of the taxi. First and foremost, the song's lyricist Al Dubin tells us that it's the rumble of the subway train and the rattle of the taxi, both sounds that we would associate with a visit to Broadway today. But then he introduces the, the daffodils who entertain at Angelo's and Maxie's. Meaning, of course, the chorus cuties who sing and dance not in a mainstream musical comedy, but rather in a fictitious nightclub that could be a stand-in for scores of other similar joints. Then in the second chorus, he goes on to evoke the experience of being in that nightclub. Come on along and listen to the band begins to go to town and everyone goes crazy. You rock by your baby round till everything gets hazy. He's not talking about the band in the pit of a Broadway musical. No, he's referring to you and your baby dancing the night away in the wild, smoky atmosphere of the nightclub and getting dizzy and probably tipsy in the process. And you and your baby don't call it a night and go home until it's early in the morning and the milkman's on his way because Manhattan babies don't sleep tight until the dawn. Let's call it a day. Listen to the lullaby of old Broadway. So this night out on the town on Broadway may indeed have included seeing a legit show earlier in the evening, but the song certainly never mentions it. That's because in 1934, when this song was written, that was Broadway, just as much as seeing Ethel Merman in Anything Goes earlier that evening would have been. And indeed, you might have seen Ethel again later that night at one of the nightclubs, either as a patron or as a moonlighting performer. It was not at all unusual for Broadway stars to have midnight gigs at a nightclub after their show. Now let's look at Give My Regards to Broadway, which was written by George M. Cohan way back in 1904. Although the first verse is a bit opaque in its meaning, Give my regards to Broadway, remember me to Herald Square. Tell all the gang at 42nd Street that I will soon be there. Whisper of how I'm yearning to mingle with the old-time throng. Give my regards to Broadway and say that I'll be there ere long. That's pretty general, but in the second verse, Cohan makes it very clear what he's talking about when he says, when you're at the Waldorf, have a smile and charge it up to me. 
And in the song 45 Minutes from Broadway, which Cohan wrote in 1906, a character named Kid Burns, a Broadway wise guy, is complaining about being stuck in the small town of New Rochelle, and he sings... Only 45 minutes from Broadway, not a cafe in the town. Oh, the place is a bird. No one here ever heard of Delmonico, Rector, or Brown. All three of these songs are about Broadway babies missing the nightlife of New York, the world that they considered to be Broadway. And as you will hear, the Waldorf Astoria, Delmonico's, Rector's, and Brown's are a crucial part of the story. Over the course of this series, I will lead you on a late-night tour of many of Broadway's most famous hotspots, including Rector's, Reisenweber's, the El Fay Club, Club Durant, Club Richmond, the Hotsy Totsy Club, Club Alabama, the Silver Slipper, the Pansy Club, the Stork Club, Casa Lopez, La Conga, 21, the Parody Club, the Rainbow Room, the Latin Quarter, El Morocco, the Astor Roof, the Cotton Club, yes, it was in Times Square for a while, Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe, the Copacabana, and many, many more, where you will rub elbows with such stars as Vernon and Irene Castle, James Reese Europe, Sophie Tucker, Clifton Webb, George Raft, Rudolph Valentino, Gilda Gray, Texas Guinan, Ethel Waters, Florence Mills, Helen Morgan, Harry Richmond, Bill Robinson, Cab Calloway, Desi Arnaz, Tommy Dorsey, Frank Sinatra, Fats Waller, and Clayton, Jackson, and Durante, to name only a few. But before we venture out into the night, I think we need to look back at the origins of this other side of Broadway. Where exactly does the story of New York nightlife begin? Well, at least for white, upper-class, and middle-class New Yorkers, it begins at Delmonico's, America's first restaurant. It was founded by Italian-Swiss immigrant brothers Giovanni and Pietro Delmonico. Now, of course, Delmonico's was not America's first place to eat outside the home. There had always been inns and taverns for travelers and working men that served fixed meals at fixed times. And in its early years, in the 1820s and 30s, Delmonico's was much like other eating houses that fed the lawyers, merchants, and stock exchange men of Lower Manhattan. These were dark, uncomfortable rooms that served simple daytime food suitable for men who were in a hurry to get back to work. And because of their all-male atmosphere, women were heavily discouraged, if not outright forbidden, to enter. Outside of this, almost all other meals during the Victorian and Edwardian eras were eaten at home, where women were expected to stay. By 1848, however, Delmonico's had evolved into what the New York Weekly described as an expensive and aristocratic restaurant, and in fact, the only complete specimen of its kind in the United States. This was the achievement of the brother's young nephew, Lorenzo Delmonico, who took over the restaurant in 1848 and transformed it into a refined, efficient, and orderly institution. Under his tutelage, the waiters were instructed how to provide fast, efficient, and extremely courteous and deferential service. This itself was revolutionary, and such service became a hallmark of the era, and a century later would inspire the waiters' gallop in Hello, Dolly! Lorenzo introduced dishes that were unknown outside of Europe, along with the concept of an a la carte menu offering a wide variety of meals, all served to order in luxurious and elegant dining rooms. 
As New York gradually moved further and further uptown, so did Delmonico's. When it arrived at Fifth Avenue and 14th Street in 1863, it hired a great French chef named Charles Ranhofer. From then until 1895, he would substantially elevate the standards of American dining and help Delmonico's to achieve an unprecedented level of sophistication in atmosphere and cuisine. Among the dishes that Ranhofer introduced or invented there were chicken a la king, lobster Newburgh, steak Delmonico, eggs Benedict, and baked Alaska. Delmonico's cultivated an atmosphere of elegance and exclusiveness. As one writer put it, there is always the peace, order, comfort, and elegance for which Delmonico's is famous. And by the 1860s, this even made women feel comfortable and welcome there. They were comfortable in part because no unescorted women were allowed to enter. Women could only walk through Delmonico's door on the arm of a man. Samuel Ward McAllister, the real-life character that Nathan Lane plays on the HBO series The Gilded Age, was one of the men who escorted women to Delmonico's. McAllister had pretty much appointed himself the arbiter of New York high society. Socialite Elizabeth Lair called him the Shepherd of the 400. And in fact, it had been McAllister that inspired Caroline Astor to establish the concept of the 400, a number that was first broached when McAllister said in an aside to a reporter in 1888, Why, there are only about 400 people in fashionable New York society. If you go outside that number, you strike people who are either not at ease in the ballroom or make other people not at ease. See the point? His 1890 memoir, which he titled Society as I Have Found It, includes a poem that was written in his honor by a friend following a dinner that McAllister had hosted at Delmonico's at the height of his influence. It reads, There ne'er was seen so fair a sight as at Delmonico's last night, when feathers, flowers, gems, and lace adorned each lovely form and face. A garden of all thorns bereft, the outside world behind them left. And by whose magic wand is this, all conjured up the height of bliss? Tis he who now before you looms, the autocrat of drawing rooms. The autocrat of drawing rooms was McAllister. Put on your Sunday clothes, there's lots of world out there. Get out the brilliant teen and dine the cigar. We're gonna find adventure in the evening air. Girls in white in a perfume night where the lights are bright as the stars. Put on your Sunday clothes. We're gonna ride through town in one of those new horse-drawn open cars. We'll see the shows at Delmonico's and we'll close the town in a world. But we won't come home until we So Delmonico's was the first big step toward New York nightlife. However, contrary to Jerry Herman's lyric in Hello, Dolly, you could not see any shows there because Delmonico's did not feature any entertainment or even music or dancing, at least not until much, much later when it had to keep up with the growing competition it had inspired. For example, the legendary restaurant Luchow's. And it is my order as head waiter of the Harmonia Gardens that our usual lightning service will be twice as lightning as ever. Or else! (laughs) 
Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break with dinner at the Harmonia Gardens. No, I mean Luchow's. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com bn50 and use code bn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The most likely model for the Harmonia Gardens restaurant, where Dolly Levi and Horace Vandegelder meet to eat both in Thornton Wilder's play The Matchmaker, which is set in the 1880s, and in its musical adaptation Hello, Dolly!, which is set in the 1890s, was Luchow's, which opened in 1882 at 110 East 14th Street, a block from Union Square. August Guido Luchow, a German immigrant who arrived in the United States in 1879 at the age of 23, soon found work as a waiter and bartender at a cafe and beer garden belonging to a certain Baron von Melbach. Just three years later, at age 26, Luchow was able to purchase the business, possibly with the help of a $1,500 loan from William Steinway, the piano magnate, who was a regular customer at von Melbach's establishment and had a concert hall and showroom called Steinway Hall right across the street. At that time, this stretch of 14th Street was one of the most prestigious parts of the city, and August Luchow's new establishment quickly became known as the capital of 14th Street. Gradually, he would expand the restaurant until it took over most of the entire block. 
And since 14th Street was the heart of the musical, theatrical, literary, and political life of New York, and with Luchow's proximity not just to Steinway Hall, but also to Tony Pastor's Theater, where Vaudeville was born, the Academy of Music, which was the city's opera house of the day, and Tammany Hall, which was the center of politics, it was only natural that Luchow's became a favorite hangout for people in the emerging music and entertainment world. And the food was good, too. In fact, this German-American feasting hall would be considered the final word in epic Teutonic dining from then all the way up to its closure in 1982. Over the years, many famous names from Vaudeville, Tin Pan Alley, and early Broadway became associated with Luchow's. Oscar Hammerstein I, Weber and Fields, and Irving Berlin were regular customers. Millionaire businessman Diamond Jim Brady and the glamorous vaudeville and Broadway superstar Lillian Russell dined together there so often that they both had private dining rooms named after them. And legend has it that Diamond Jim once hosted a banquet there to which he invited 20 Broadway chorus girls to be his guest. As they sat down at the table, each of the ladies found, tucked in their dinner napkin, a $500 bill plus a piece of diamond jewelry. In addition to its Sauerbraten, Wiener Schnitzel, and imported Würzburger beer, Luchow's became famous for its music as well. Composer Victor Herbert was another devoted customer. The table where he ate lunch nearly every day would eventually be adorned with a plaque designating it as Victor Herbert's Corner. And reportedly, Herbert wrote the scores to some of his most famous operettas at that table. In 1901, Herbert persuaded August Luchow to add another innovation to the dining experience, a small orchestra that played music during dinner and supper. They played Strauss waltzes, Brahms, Wagner, Liszt, and Victor Herbert, of course. Later, in 1914, Herbert and a few colleagues gathered at his table to establish ASCAP, the American Society of Composers and Publishers. A decade later, another regular patron, songwriter Gus Kahn, composed the lyrics to Yes Sir, That's My Baby at Luchow's. So it was not so far-fetched for Jerry Herman and Michael Stewart to imagine a similar establishment in which a polka contest could win you a life-changing gold cup and where galloping German waiters would welcome Dolly Levi back to the human race by serenading her with the show's title song. For I went away from the lights at 14th Street And into my personal haze but now that I'm back in the lights of 14th Street, tomorrow will be brighter than the good old days. No. In 1897, Delmonico's made its final move to 5th Avenue and 44th Street. But by then, it was no longer the only excellent restaurant that catered to sophisticated and fashionable New Yorkers. Delmonico's had transformed dining, and now others began competing for that same upscale clientele. The Waldorf Astoria opened on 34th Street, and Sherry's opened right across the street from Delmonico's a year later. The Waldorf's main restaurant, the Palm Garden, put diners on public display and soon became the most sought-after eating place in America. 
lined floor to ceiling with mirrors, the Palm Garden gave diners a 360 view of themselves and other rich and powerful diners. People came from all over just to sit and watch the famous men and fashionable women seated around them. This was a major change in society. The wealthy first families that made up Mrs. Astor's 400 were growing restless and began looking for amusements outside of their own homes. The younger set especially expressed increasing boredom with her authoritarian rule and the limited social outlets available to them. They wanted to go out. Soon, Fifth Avenue was lined with other fashionable restaurants. Martin's, the Holland House, the St. Regis, the Savoy. And on Broadway, there was the Astor Hotel and the Knickerbocker. Music was introduced into all of these restaurants after the turn of the century, but decorum was still a prime value. According to the Hotel Monthly, public dining rooms should expunge emotional excitement and be like the most elegant of private homes in which every effort is made to preserve quiet in the dining room. Orchestras were placed behind screens or palms and were instructed to play soft music appropriate to the dignified ambiance. The public restaurant was still expected to mirror the private world of the finest homes. But there was no dancing. In the 19th century, upper-class women only danced at private parties in their homes or at formal balls and dances that included a carefully invited list of guests and strict social codes of behavior, including dance cards and chaperones. The kinds of events that we've seen portrayed in countless films and television shows set in the Gilded Age. But that didn't mean that upper-class men couldn't dance. All they had to do was venture west of Broadway and go slumming in the Tenderloin. From about 1870 to 1910, the Tenderloin District was a whole other world, almost an alternate reality. This was New York's largest entertainment and red light district. And it was teeming with saloons, dance halls, music halls, gambling casinos, bordellos, and clip joints of every kind. It was a sexy, boozy, non-stop party where people of every race and color, every economic strata, and every sexual proclivity mixed and mingled. The establishment and the press didn't call it the Tenderloin. They called it Satan's Circus. And on the next episode of Broadway Nation, we'll go there together. My baby, when you hear them bells go dingling, all down around, and sweetly you must sing when the birds and suit and the horse will all join in. There'll be a hot Whether this is your first time listening to Broadway Nation or you're a longtime fan, I'd love to hear from you. You can message me via our website at broadway-nation.com, on Instagram at david at Broadway Nation, on Twitter at Podcast Broadway, or join more than 2,000 fans of this podcast in our fun and very interactive Broadway Nation Facebook group. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. There are two books that were immensely informative and helpful in creating this episode. The first is Stepping Out, New York Nightlife and the Transformation of American Culture by Lewis Ehrenberg. The second is Inventing Times Square, Commerce and Culture at the Crossroads of the World, which is a collection of articles and essays edited by William Taylor. Special thanks to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. 
Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 